everyone. If you would like to support what I'm doing with Controversies in Church History and help me to expand its reach, please click on my Anchor page and click the support button to donate. Thank you for listening. Okay. So, let me set the scene here. We're talking about the Second Vatican Council. I'm going to take you back, not to the 1960s when the council actually uh, occurred, but to 2005. Uh, Because in 2005, the former Pope, Pope Benedict, gave a speech to the uh, Papal Curio in uh, December of 2005, in which he elaborated on the achievements of the Second Vatican Council and talked about the various interpretations of the council that were uh, that had emerged from it and that had been sort of um, conflicting ever since. And Pope Benedict uh, called these, he called them hermeneutics of the council. Uh, the first he uh, called a hermeneutic of discontinuity in reform, which saw the uh, teachings of the council as a break with the past, as a sort of firm overturning of the uh, teachings of uh, the Catholic Church in previous centuries, which emphasized its rupture, its um, disruptive qualities. Uh, On the other hand, uh, he said there was a hermeneutic of reform, which saw the efforts of the council not as one of breaking with the past or trying to overcome the past, but of trying to go back into the past and to renew the church from within its own past, Uh, a hermeneutic of going back and retrieving things from its past that it lost contact with, which he calls the hermeneutic of reform. And if you don't know, by the way, uh, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, was actually, of course, at the Second Vatican Council, so he was a part of this. Uh, And he goes on to say that the reason that the council was called was to confront the problem of the modern world and the problem of modernity. Um, And he talks in his lecture, you can go see this online, it's pretty short, his speech to the Curia, in which he goes back and sort of recites, not everything, but lots of the big events that shaped modern society going back to basically the French Revolution, right? And all the sort of uh, difficulties that the Catholic Church has experienced with the modern nation state, with uh, uh, grappling with modern ideas, things like evolution, stuff like this. Uh, And he says, basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, that this is what the council was meant to do. And now, one of the things that when you hear about this, when you, and I say this, uh, well, reflect on my own experience at some point in this lecture, but one of the things which you, which you will hear about if you actually study um, scholars when they talk about the council is they'll talk about the Second Vatican Council as an event. And I put that word in quotation marks because they don't mean like an ordinary everyday event, something that happened. They use, they're using philosophical terminology, if you can believe this. Um, what they're talking about is the council as an ongoing event, as something that's you know, bigger than the actual documents that it produced, bigger than the sort of um, you know, things it proclaimed, that it's somehow still affecting uh, uh, the church today. And um, this is something that basically everybody involved in the council who uh, was a part of it, most people actually, they talk this way in a way that I, I admit I'm not all that comfortable with. because I have, First of all, I don't think it has any real application to anything in the real world is the first part. But also because it tends to make, I think, too much of the council. And this is—you'll see where I'm going with this, I think, later on. Um, but it is a very much at the heart of a lot of our modern debates, divisions within the modern Catholic Church is uh, the interpretation of what Vatican II—not only what it was, the significance of it, what it did. And as you're going to see, there's there real there's there real good reasons why they're still talking about it uh, as something that's still ongoing uh, going forward. So, uh, and so what we're going to try to get to you in this lecture is to give you, again, some 
uh, rationale as to how this whole these two hermeneutics, the hermeneutic of reform and rupture, uh, came about, where they came from, and uh, and uh, hopefully a better grasp of the issues involved uh, when we hear these types of things. All right. So now we go back to uh, the time when the council, well, just a few before the council actually uh, opens, and we need to go back to the post-war world, to the post-World War II era, when um, uh, in the 15 years or so before the council opens, because it's important to note um, the immediate context of what the bishops and the theologians who uh, who made up the council, um, the world they kind of lived in. Because, um, of course, after World War II, Europe needs to rebuild, right? It's in the sort of aftermath of the violence of World War II. Uh, and one of the major things, of course, that dominates Europe for the next 50 years is the Cold War. The church from uh, the World War I onwards is very, very staunchly anti-communist. It's very much involved with um, not only anti-communism, but also with uh, rebuilding Europe uh, in various countries. Catholic politicians will form um, Christian democratic parties uh, throughout many different uh, countries and work with Protestants and other non-Catholics to help rebuild European countries after the devastation of the war. Um, and it's one that to keep in mind, partly because this, this is a real shift uh, between this cooperation between Catholics and Protestants in a lot of these countries. Uh, it's a big shift from what preceded um, Catholic-Protestant relations weren't always so friendly before the war. Uh, and that'll be a big influence, as it will be on the European Union. Uh, and I'm mentioning this because, again, this is one of these projects that comes out of the post-war period, starts in the 1950s. The project of trying to you know, unite uh, European countries in a sort of confederation of states that will kind of prevent you know, the sort of conflict from raging that happened in World War II. A lot of the people who were architects of the European Union were, in fact, Catholic politicians, faithful ones, by the way. Uh, people like um, Gaspari in Italy, Robert Schumann in France, and above all, Konrad Adenauer in West Germany. The German West Chancellor was a Catholic. And I know I'm not a big fan of the EU myself. It's become a sort of big conglomerate superstate, which is not really what it was intended to be. But it was something that was inspired to a certain degree by Catholic social teaching in the beginning. And so you're having a church which is, again, having to deal with these sorts of issues. It's also, by the way, having to deal with the Eastern Bloc because we'll have, you know, in places like Poland, the church will be uh, existing uh, in very tense conditions in communist countries uh, like Poland. Another thing to keep in mind in the 1950s as you go into the early 1960s is, um, and the church has done this in the modern period, going back to the 19th century, put a lot of emphasis on the church's authority with regards to, the fam- with regards to family life. Religion is kind of going through, um, it is in the United States going through a kind of a boom. It even is a little bit in Europe in the post-war period, immediately after World War II. Um, again, not as big in the United States. It was really big, actually, for a lot of reasons. But um, religious life seems to re- recover a little bit in the immediate post-war period. And so the church is very conscious of, its again, its effect on family life in uh, Europe. Uh, it's a part of, again, that effort to stabilize European society after um, the devastation of the war. Um, and then finally, one other thing to note about this uh, immediate post-war period is I'm calling this the European miracle. It's usually, I think it's usually called the West German miracle. But it's, it refers to the rec- economic recovery of Europe, which again is in full swing by the time the council opens, early 1960s. 
Um, Europe will, um, you know, and again, with a big, 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 big assist, by the way, from the United States in terms of uh, the, uh, the Marshall Plan and other things like that and, you know, paying for its military defense, uh, allows it to sort of get itself on its feet very quickly. And so a lot of uh, the countries that were devastated by the war, Germany, West Germany especially, France, uh, Britain, their economies get going by the time. All the sort of wartime austerity is gone by the time the early 60s roll around. Uh, all the sort of um, constraints that that imposes upon you. And I'm, I, I, I emphasize this because the council opens into a world in which people, again, have money. They want to spend it. They're not um, – how can I put this? They're not um, – um, they're doing well again, and I think that changes their outlook. It makes them, in some ways, more optimistic about life, uh, as money usually tends to do uh, in many sorts of ways. So you have this kind of uh, optimism, which is going to feed into the council, uh, definitely in the uh, surrounding area. And I, I have to stress uh, when I talk about this, especially um, this sense that uh, Catholics, especially Catholic politicians, leaders, um, feel a real solidarity with people in Europe, again, with their Protestant confreres, it's a, a part of this experience of the post-war, which is really important for understanding what they do. Let's see. Now, at the same time, you've had um, real serious tensions between the Vatican and um, academic theologians going back at least 50 years um, to the early part of the 20th century. And this is what we call the modernist crisis. Actually, going back to the 19th century, I should say. Because uh, at the end of the 19th century, you had uh, theologians who wanted to reconcile church teaching with modern, various different sorts of modern intellectual ideas, uh, modern biblical criticism, for example, uh, theories of evolution, stuff like this. And in 1907, Pope Pius X issued a encyclical uh, condemning basically all of these types of uh, accommodations with modern uh, intellectual life uh, called Pescendi Domini, a very detailed list of things that were uh, condemned. Uh, and so you have a condemnation of uh, basically any sort of accommodation with modern um, – not any accommodation with modern intellectual life, but any of the things he lists, and he lists a lot of things in Vicente Domini. And at the same time, <clears throat> there is a drive to sort of purge um, seminary faculties and theolo theological faculties of people who are espousing these ideas. The uh, – Encyclical itself actually called for the creation of censorship committees, actually called for um, – they did actually administer an oath to everyone to sort of take an oath swearing, uh, swearing that they would not teach these ideas in uh, Catholic uh, uh, universities and stuff. Um, and some of this, by the way – and by the way, this is the sort of thing that um, – you know, it used to be fairly standard. Again, you have a set of beliefs. You expect people you hire to teach them. Uh, this kind of went beyond this. I say this because I'm generally I'm generally for condemning modernism. I'm okay with that. But it went a little o overboard, is my point. Uh, at certain points, you had these censorship committees basically encouraging, for example, students to rat out their professors. And you wonder why that's a bad – it should be obvious why it's a bad thing. It really creates an atmosphere of distrust. Uh, and it's also something, by the way, the Nazis did in the 1930s. It's a bad deal. Excesses is a problem, a real big problem, and it creates an atmosphere. Of course, people are afraid to speak their minds and speak clearly what they actually believe. Um, and so you're going to have, and this continues, by the way, not necessarily the condemnations, but you'll have, for example, theologians right at the council being censured, and even afterward, to a much, much greater degree, this will change all proportion after the council. Um, for deviation from what the, from uh, from uh, Catholic orthodoxy. Now, this is bound up with the dominant theological um, 
school in the late 19th, early 20th century, which we call neo-scholasticism, if you don't know what this is, in the um, 1870s, Pope Leo XIII, um, basically declared that Thomas Aquinas should be the sort of model for Christian doing Christian philosophy for theology. Issued a whole encyclical, by the way, on this, rather, rather lovely. Uh, and so this led to a resuscitation of, of Thomistic thinking. And in fact, you had, this was what gets called neo-scholastic thinking. Um, and so this was the dominant sort of uh, um, intellectual framework in which Catholic theology was done up until the 1960s. And um, what you're going to have is that increasingly, you get through the council era, you're going to have theologians, members of the, uh, the Holy Office, by the way, the Holy, the Holy Office, this is the predecessor of the uh, Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the Old Inquisition, basically, Roman Inquisition. I think it was called the Holy Office for the, for the propaganda. I can't remember the exact Latin name, but the Holy Office was the one who oversaw you know, orthodoxy. Um, and what's going to happen is they're going to be very suspicious of anything that's not neo-scholastic. Um, and basically anything that seems sort of to, to, to attack it too much. And I mention this because you're going to have emerging in the post-war period theologians, and they'll get a collective term by one of their neo-scholastic critics, uh, he calls them nouvelle theologie, the new, the new theology, um, who begin to criticize neo-scholasticism, or try to. Um, and they make several criticisms of neo-scholastic thinking. One is that it's ahistorical. Uh, and what I mean by that is a lot of these neo-scholastic thinkers, even though they're, they're using Thomistic ideas, the ideas of Thomas, they mostly don't actually read Thomas. They don't read his works. They read commentaries on Thomas. And some of these critics actually like Thomas. They just want to go back to him and abandon the commentaries, essentially. Other criticisms are, is that it's too dry. It's too technical. Um, it's too abstract. Uh, it doesn't appeal to ordinary people, stuff like this. Uh, some of these criticisms, by the way, are overblown. I'll, I'll say that. Uh, others are fairly are kind of fair. There is a little bit of an ahistorical nature to a lot of this neo-scholasticism, even though it's not my, my area here. And I'm mentioning all this, by the way, this theological stuff, because this is going to play a direct role in the council itself. There are, I'm not going to go through names, because if I do this, I'll hear you here all night, but there are several, maybe a dozen or so theologians who are associated with this. It's not even, by the way, a formal movement. Um, most of these people, they all know each other, by the way, German, French theologians, who uh, in one way or another basically share all those criticisms of neo-scholasticism. Um, the main difference, by the way, between these new, new, theolo new theologians is basically they share the same criticism. They share basically two different orientations, more positive orientations. One group, and this includes people like Joseph, the young Joseph Ratzinger, uh, but also people like Henri de Lubac, uh, Louis Boyer, some uh, great, great French theologians. They want Catholic theology to reflect a greater emphasis on the Bible, on the early um, fathers of the church, on the medieval theologians, uh, rather than, you know, Basically, basically, theology was essentially the theology that was inherited from the 19th century. And they're basically quoting each other, these um, 20, early 20th century theologians. So you have, and this is, by the way, this tendency is sometimes called resourcement. What this means is they want to go back to the earliest sources of the church's doctrine, the early church fathers, the medieval fathers. This is certainly what Joseph Ratzinger, he says this, by the way, in one of his recent books. That was what he wanted. Uh, he wanted Catholic theology to reflect a better emphasis on this. The other group uh, is a group of people most, most uh, probably best represented by Karl Rahner, who was a German Jesuit. Um, they wanted to reconcile Catholic theology with certain aspects of modern uh, philosophy, more particularly uh, people like the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. That's actually not him. That's one of his colleagues, Bernard Lonergan, or in his case, Martin Heidegger. Uh, he actually tried to. 
he really can't do this very well, but he tried to. Uh, Rahner was a brilliant person. Um, fused the Thomistic theology with the, the existentialist philosophy of Martin Heidegger, sometimes called referred to as transcendental Thomism. Um, and um, it didn't go over well, by the way. <laughs> uh, authorities didn't like it. I, by the way, tried reading one of Runner's books one time. I could not make heads or tails, but it sounded like gibberish to me. But uh, he, was a, he was a very, very brilliant guy, a good teacher, by the way, from what I understand. Um, and so you have this other group, probably, by the way, probably the most notorious of this group, which, again, I don't know if you can call them neo-modernists. That might be something close to what they, what they, would, uh, what they would be. Uh, it was a man named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. He was a French thinker, if you know who that is. Um, probably the most, <clears throat> probably the least impressive of the bunch. Um, Chardin, uh, he died before his works that really got censured. They actually put on the Index of Prohibited Works uh, in the 1950s. He died in 1955. Tr- worked out this theology which tried to, to merge uh, a sort of cosmic theory of evolution with Catholic doctrine. Um, one uh, Catholic writer referred to it as uh, a Catholic version of Scientology, which, uh, from what I read, is an insult to Scientologists because it's really not <laughs> – it's not very – I mean, I, I did because I read something I didn't I – didn't, I wasn't very impressed at all, and I, didn't, and I didn't really understand. My point is that I think the reason – because all his contemporaries lauded this person, even someone like Joseph Rotzinger, which I could never understand. I think I understand now because Teilhard, like a lot of the other theologians, were put under censorship. They were – uh, for example, Honey de Lubac, for six years, not by Rome, but by his religious order, the Jesuits, was actually forbade, uh, forbid to teach in France. So you'll have them being you know, basically put under suspicion and stuff like this, um, some of these theologians, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for not so good reasons. Um, one other thing that goes uh, into these tensions, I think, and this is me, my research, and we're going to do this, is I think there's a tension that it, uh, arises because of the professionalization of of theology, basically, in the early 20th century. Um, the early modernists, the people who were writing you know, all this stuff in the latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, they, um, they were sort of outsiders to seminaries and uh, uh, theological faculties. They didn't have academic posts. Almost all the people I'm talking about here work in seminaries. They work in, for example, German theologians, by the way, they would work in secular universities in Germany because they would actually have theological faculties in secular universities, right? So a lot of this, I think, has to do with the professionalization of theology. They begin to imbibe their standards more and more from the the secular academic world, is my point, to a certain degree. At least that's why I look at it to a certain degree. Uh, And so this is going to create a tension with, again, naturally with the Vatican, which their main thing is not modern methods of scholarship, but preserving an ancient tradition, right? So something in the background of this. So that brings me to the council itself, which... Um, he is going to be convoked by Pope John XXIII, um, and he'll announce this early on in his, in his papacy. He gets elected in 1958. Um, and uh, the first thing to note is that even though he claimed differently later on, John XXIII claimed later on that he this came to him as a, in a moment of inspiration, but uh, people have actually been talking about holding an ecumenical council for decades, actually. Both of his predecessors, Pius XI, uh, had brooded this idea with his cardinals in the 1920s, uh, as well as uh, Pius XII, uh, who is usually taken to be the polar opposite in some ways of John XXIII. Um, both of them have been to- had toyed with the idea. In fact, uh, some of his cardinals had urged uh, Pius XII um, uh, later in, in the 1950s, when he was getting older, that he should you know take a bit. Actually, several times they tried to convince him to convene a council. 
And one of the reasons, by the way, these earlier popes might have wanted to do this is that, if you recall, and if you were here for my talk on Vatican I, you would, I'm sure, uh, the first Vatican Council never finished its work. It was cut short by the Franco-Prussian War, uh, and therefore it only got to define, only got as far as defining the nature of the church and then papal authority. It didn't get to define, for example, what a bishop's authority was. And there was some thinking among, and by the way, we're not talking about wild-eyed uh, radicals. We're talking about very, the, most, the most, if you like, conservative people in the Curia wanting to do this in order to clarify the church's teaching, to make sure that it was you know, whole and intact and everything. Um, but for whatever reason, either Pius, Pius I and Pius XII are kind of busy with wars and stuff like this, so they never got around to doing this. Uh, and so it was left to John the Twenty-Third, who, when he comes to uh, comes to the papal throne in the nineteen uh, fifties, um, uh, is almost immediately beloved, probably because of his personality. Uh, John the Twenty-Third was a big contrast to Pius the Twelfth. John the Twenty-Third was a you know gregarious, warm-hearted. Um, he was, by the way, he was also from a, and this is another thing my people like him, he came from a lower class background, essentially Italian peasant family, uh, as was, by the way, St. Pius X. Um, whereas his predecessor, Pius XII, again, was an aristocrat, he was kind of a more formal, more stiff sort of person. Uh, I say this because he tends to get the reputation, does John XXIII, of being the good pope, uh, especially by those who think of the council as being a big break and rupture of the past. They like him because he thinks he basically, you know, basically gets rid of everything in the past and opens a new era and all this stuff. Uh, but I think uh, a lot of it just is. I think, I think there's a lot of personality. I don't want to say cult here, but there's a lot of just affection for his personality that makes it seem this way. <clears throat> um, and I think maybe people project a little bit too much his personality onto what he actually did. But it is um, John XXIII who will give, in some ways, the defining, I don't want to say tone to the council. Excuse me. By utilizing a word which, to this day, is one of the buzzwords associated with the council, which is the Italian word aggiornamento. And if you don't know what that means, anybody know what that means? By the way, I guess it means updating. And um, this was, yeah. If there was a motto for the council, this could probably be it: updating. Uh, and by the way, it's something he did never in his term. He never actually used uh, when he spoke to the council, addressed it when he uh, when it opened. <clears throat> but he used it a couple of times before the council opened. In fact, the first time he used it was in a speech talking about the, uh, the rewriting of the Code of Canon Law, which is actually they had a Code of Canon Law issued in 1917. They're going to reissue another one. He dies well before it's finished. Um, but it meant updating the Code of Canon Law originally. But uh, in a speech to some uh, clergy in Rome uh, in uh, 1961, he used that word to refer to the church itself, that it needed to be updated. Uh, and what he meant by this, we'll talk about this more in a minute, is to update its presentation of its teaching for uh, the modern age to a certain degree. Um, later on, when he was asked what he meant by convening the council, uh, some accounts have him confirming that he wanted to, quote, open up the windows and let in some fresh air, unquote, uh, into the church. Um, and I mention this because one of the things I, and I don't have time to go into too much detail here, is that one thing you should get from this is that even before the Second Vatican Council was held, is that there are already interpretations of the council <laughs> before it actually gets formally convoked. People already have are bringing very different ideas of what it should do to this council. And in fact, as I think I'll show in a moment, I don't, I'm not even sure necessarily that John the 23rd understood exactly what he wanted the council to do. Because one of the other preparations that he um, called for was a synod of bishops to meet in Rome, sort of discuss ideas about what, this, what the synod should be about. And uh, 
they produced several documents, which I wasn't able to get a hand, my hands on, but one of the things that they talked about, the Synod produced a bunch of, you know, the preparatory material for the council itself. Um, they talked about things like the restoration of ascetic life among the clergy, that is to have them have more regular prayer life, you know, um, more regular fasting, stuff like this, stuff that's very, very kind of hoary and traditional. Uh, they also talked about a lot affirming traditional liturgical practices, um, you know, Marian devotion, stuff like this, stuff you wouldn't think of if you associate the Council of as, as a sort of great break with the past. Even more striking than this is the, uh, John the Twenty Third's address to the count, address to this synod, in which basically, among other things, he um, he says, and I'm just pointing for some some of this here, that he uh, enjoined the clergy of Rome to lead an immaculate life. I'm quoting from that uh, text here. Uh, and above all, they have to avoid uh, what he calls the world and the spirit of the world, to be detached from the worldliness and, and things of this nature. <clears throat> and he even quotes, um, invokes, by the way, as his sort of model for this, Pope Pius IX. If you don't know who that is, Pope Pius IX is sort of the, uh, well, if you're, if you're a very liberal Catholic, he's the sort of devil because he's the most anti-modern pope we've had. He's a 19th century pope. Or, conversely, if you think of him as being uh, your anti-modern hero, that's him. But he uh, invokes him lovingly in this document. Um, so when he talks about updating the church, he means updating what is you know, taking from the past. He's not necessarily talking about new things. And this is even made more clear in a lot of ways by what ha- by the apostolic constitution that he issues in 1962, just before the council opens, which uh, lays out his program for clerical education, which which he envisions after the, the council is over. And if you don't know what those words mean, by the way, veterum sapientia, that means ancient wisdom. And what the document's about is, it's about teaching Latin in seminaries. He wants to uh, encourage the teaching of Latin, the knowledge of Latin, to make it better, basically, uh, as well as, by the way, the teaching of Greek in seminaries. In other words, he wants to keep this continuity within the church uh, pretty clearly. But the main body of work, um, let me see, look at this here, that's done preparing for the council, is done by, um, uh, I think the number is 10 uh, preparatory commissions. Uh, set up uh, just after he convokes the council in 1959. Uh, there are 10 of these, 10 specialized commissions with, I don't have all the different um, different uh, items they're studying, but they will uh, comprise about uh, uh, comprise mostly of members of the Roman Curious. You have most of the people working in the Vatican working on these documents. Um, and they're the ones who are going to create the original schema for the council. We're going to go through and maybe very detailed documents about uh, various aspects of the church's teaching. One of these, by the way, become very important in the council is, uh, is something that's actually uh, created the behest of, um, of John XXIII, is the Secretariat for Christian Unity. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and um, it'll become a focal point because one of the reasons, one of the other reasons that John wanted to call the council was he wanted to have better relationships with uh, non-Catholic Christians, Protestants, and Orthodox uh, and this will become one of the um, things that will be uh, uh, really sort of worked out and battled out in the, uh, the council itself. And so by the time the council opens in 1962, these preparatory commissions um, have uh, um, come up with seven original schema. These are documents which basically lay out, um, lay out parameters for the discussion the bishops are going to have at the council itself. And they compose basically their seven schemas uh, on topics, and I'll read the topics to you. One's on the sources of revelation, uh, not in any order. Another one on the Christian moral order, 
Third, on the defending defending the deposit of the faith. Four, on chastity, marriage, the family, and virginity. Five, on the sacred liturgy. Uh, Six, on communications media. Uh, And seven, on the church's unity. And uh, one of the things about, if you read the schema that's very interesting, is that, well, first of all, some of this, by the way, is going to get into the actual documents of the Vatican Council. Some of this stuff is actually not totally directly, but some of the same concerns will go into the council. But the documents, the documents themselves, the schema, are actually very different from what will emerge from the Second Vatican Council because these schema uh, lay out Catholic teaching. They lay out truths and doctrines to be affirmed. Then they list errors to be condemned. And I mention this because this is basically the way that every – Pretty much every ecumenical council has a, uh, had uh, worked basically what they produced uh, up to this point in Christian history. That's what they did when they met in a, uh, in a council, right? Because mostly in councils previously, when they meet in the midst uh, in the past, they're meeting because of some sort of emergency, and they have to sort of you know defend the faith by defining something and then condemning errors. One of the real big uh, you call it differences about uh, Vatican II is there's no immediate uh, emergency when it's called. And this is one of the reasons why, even to this day, the debates about why it was called, what was the meaning of it, those sorts of things. Um, and as you're going to see, what gets produced is actually going to shift at the very beginning of the council to something different. And so the original schemas don't make it through to, uh, to shape the council's documents and what it says. And so it opens in uh, October of 1962. And... Um, yeah, just in terms of a word or two about logistics, just to give you a sense of what's going on in the council, um, this is the biggest council that's ever taken place. And I mean, it's big, it's huge. Um, there are, depending on who's attending, between 23 and 2,400 bishops crammed into St. Peter's Basilica in, uh, in, uh, in Rome. Um, Eighty ecumenical um, observers were also invited to the council. And by ecumenical, I mean basically non-Catholic Christians, Orthodox, Protestants, they're Lutheran observers, uh, Russian Orthodox observers uh, at the council, as well as, and we'll get to these in a moment, um, so-called periti, and these are, it's Latin for uh, experts. These are theologians who are going to be, uh, who are going to come to the council uh, in the company of bishops who will bring them along for their expertise. And I'll mention, I'll come back to them again, because they are very important, very important for understanding the course of the council. And so how this works is, basically, they will hold, <coughs> excuse me, in the mornings, in the basilica, Plenary sessions where they will uh, they'll celebrate mass. They'll uh, discuss issues related to the works of the various commissions. And I'll get this moment. There are more commissions before that, besides the preparatory ones who actually run this thing. Um, and they'll discuss the work of those commissions in the morning. Then off-site, you'll have working groups, the commissions, uh, draft documents uh, to reflect the discussions of the bishops. And then later on, usually in the evening and the afternoon, they'll have solemn sessions of all the bishops assembled where they'll cast votes on documents and either approve them, disapprove them, or approve them with, um, with conditions, basically. I'm going to give you the Latin there. And all these documents require a two-thirds majority to pass. This is, this is basically how it works. However, um, there are a series of council regulations passed in terms of that lay down you know, how things are supposed to go. Um, the fact of the matter is, and I say this because I tried to find out, nobody really knows who's responsible for what <laughs> at the council. Uh, a lot of these regulations are not very clear. That's an important point to note. In fact, uh, one historian um, um, of this said that, quote, the, uh, the regulations defy adequate de- – the way the council operated, I'm, uh, I'm quoting him, quote, defy adequate depiction in an organization chart. It's almost impossible to – it's highly complicated is my point, very complicated. 
Uh, and there's also, by the way, a problem of communication. Uh, and just think about it for a second. You have, if you're trying to communicate, have a discussion between 2,400 people in a hall. By the way, most of whom, like, don't speak the same languages. Uh, some of them, by the way, most of the European ones can speak Latin. Uh, and they can sort of uh, about the, uh, talk back and forth like that. However, people from other countries, other bishops, not the Americas so much, but uh, North America, but again, from the Americas, from poorer countries like Latin America, Africa, their bishops, they can't speak Latin as well, so they have to speak French or speak German or something like this. Um, and then just getting, you have commissioners sort of, again, I don't know if there's too much detail, just in terms of the physical logistics, it's a real, it's a real problem, is my point, of communicating what's going on to each other in the council. So just to keep that in mind in terms of when we talk about what's going on, not knowing what's going on sometimes. The last sort of, um, I don't want to say ambiguity, but sort of a lacuna written into the logistics of the council is the role of the pope. Um, I say this because the role of the pope with regard to the council was never defined. Um, this was partly because both popes, as we're going to see, John XXIII dies in the middle of the council. Both he and his successor, Paul VI, wanted... Um, wanted there to be openness in the discussions. They didn't want to impose anything on the, um, on the Council of Fathers. And again, you have to remember now, uh, you have this atmosphere in the Vatican with regard to these theologians going back to the 1950s and 40s of how people are afraid to speak up. That's very much present in the Council because all those experts, those periti, a lot of those experts were actually people who, some of them, had been censured in the 1940s and 50s. They'd been rehabilitated, and a lot of them were at the council as advisors to some of these bishops. So they're very, 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 very keenly conscious of this, of popes doing anything. I say this, by the way, this didn't prevent factions, and there were several, multiple factions in the council, from trying to basically manipulate the pope, get his assurance for things, uh, in order to sort of use his authority to try to get their way uh, in some of the voting that went on and in some of the uh, 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 votes that took place. So, and just to give you a little more background, I mentioned, um, I mentioned earlier the observers and the periti. Um, I also had mentioned the, uh, the commissions, because you have, um, uh, first, it's like 10 cardinals that, uh, that um, run these commissions um, um, of the 10 commissions that they have. And these were initially designated by the Pope. Um, and then they later on would select uh, a commission from, uh, select eight bishops uh, for the commission. Well, the council members would themselves would elect 16 uh, from among the number. I mentioned all this, by the way, all this gobbledygook. Because uh, the uh, composition of these, these commissions will change uh, very early on in the, the, uh, in the council, which makes a big difference to its outcome. Um, and, of course, you have the bishops themselves. And I'm, I won't give you a lot of names because there are so many. Um, they come from all over, all over the world, basically. You have Latin American. You have um, uh, bishops from Africa, from Asia. Um, the most, I will say the most dominant group is from Europe, and I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, European bishops dominate the council in a lot of ways, uh, as well as contributions from American bishops. We'll also talk about a little bit as well. You also, by the way, have the, um, have the, um, um, the uh, participation of Eastern Catholic bishops and other prelates, patriarchs, uh, at the council as well. They've also come. I don't know how many there are, um, even though they don't exert a terrible influence there. Finally, one other actor in all this you have to mention are the news media uh, because the uh, Second Vatican Council is one of the big 
I think I want to. I think I read somewhere besides the besides the Vietnam War, the Second Vatican Council was the most reported on event of the 1960s, which is saying something. So um, media are there from the very beginning, and this is again this is one of these communication problems because initially there's supposed to be total secrecy, uh, so that the council fathers won't be you know pressured by the public or anything like this. Uh, it doesn't work that way. You have people at the in the council, you know, giving you know feeding their favorite reporters behind the scenes. Um, and you're going to have the news media very early on sort of pushing a very, uh, again, naturally progressive line. You know, good guys want to change things, bad guys want to keep them the same. They are very much an actor in this from the very beginning. There's no real separating the, the news media from their contribution. And um, the most uh, famous instances, by the way, is the, are the uh, so-called letters, of, letters, letters from Rome, which were published during the council. It was a series of reports by someone uh, proclaiming himself to be uh, Xavier Wren, uh, Xavier Wren Senior, or something like that. Xavier Wren II, uh, who was actually uh, Father Francis Murphy, who was an American priest in Rome, feeding information. A lot of it, by the way, rather skewed uh, to uh, the New Yorker magazine uh, at the time. Um, you also, by the way, have certain um, bishops, but definitely certain clergymen who like the media a lot, like the attention. Uh, the most obvious of these, um, I'll mention them a little bit later on, is uh, the uh, theologian, German theologian Hans Kuhn, who will become a very big opponent of Joseph Ratzinger later on. Um, gets him see, he really likes the media. He, he might like the attention a lot. So this is going to really affect, I think, a lot of the way people are acting at the council to a certain degree. So it opens in October with um, uh, the Pope giving his opening speech, which uh, is called Mater Gaudet Ecclesiae. And um, this speech is very important, partly because a lot of people at the council will take their cue from the sort of tone of it, basically. Uh, in it, basically, he, um, he says the purpose of the council, quote, which is, <clears throat> I'll read the, read the whole quote, quote, the greatest concern of the ecumenical council is this, that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be more effectively defended and presented to transmit the whole, to transmit whole and entire and without distortion the Catholic doctrine, doctrine which... Uh, despite difficult, difficulties and controversies, has become the common heritage of humanity. What is needed is that this certain and unchangeable doctrine to which loyal submission is due be investigated and presented in the way demanded by our times. Um, for the deposit of faith, the truths contained in our venerable, venerable doctrine are one thing, the fashion in which they are expressed, but with the same meaning and the same judgment. Um, other words, we're going to keep the doctrine the same. We're going to change the presentation. To up, that's where the updating comes in, right? You can use that term. That's clearly what he means by all this. He also says, by the way, he also calls for, Paul VI will call for this. Most of the council fathers will go along with this. Um, a sort of, um, if you like, different tone in the way of presenting uh, Catholic doctrine. Um, of explain, uh, explaining the faith rather than condemning errors, essentially. Again, this is what every single council had done basically in Christian history, there is a sense among all the people like John the Twenty-Third that no, we just need to explain the faith better and with more positivity, meet error with mercy rather than condemnation, these sorts of things. Um, and so this has you know, a real sort of galvanizing effect. Again, well, the council others take their, their cue from the Pope. Now what's going to happen is, early on in the, uh, uh, the first session, because after he gives his speech and it opens up, the first schema they're, they're, and the way this works is they present the schema to them uh, that's been prepared by the commissions. They're going to go discuss it and then vote on it. And they can discuss, they can have emendations, they can have you know, changes to the document. 
Um, from the very beginning, though, you had a group of theologians and bishops who, and by the way, they had copies of the schema before they got the council, uh, had, ser- had obje- a series of objections to it, um, especially the uh, especially the one on the nature of the uh, nature of revelation, but all of them basically in general. And uh, I mention this because um, there was a, uh, a book written shortly after the council by a name named Father Ralph Wilkin, who's actually there at the council. He's one of these. I think he's a periti. Uh, and he calls these people, these bishops and these, um, um, these theologians, the European Alliance. Uh, and by this he meant you had a group of people who already had a set of, they had a set of things they wanted to get out of the council uh, beforehand. And um, their objections, by the way, were, should sound familiar to you, the things I've said already. Um, the schemas were too abstract. They were too ahistorical. They were too neo-scholastic. There wasn't enough scripture cited in them. They don't address the needs of the contemporary world. They're too negative. They're not mission-oriented enough. Stuff like this. They're too concerned with internal church politics. They're not in the world. Uh, And I mention this because this European alliance, a lot of those periti who had been critics of neo-scholasticism earlier on, they're the ones advising some of these bishops. And in fact, you have these bishops. uh, I'll give you – there's a couple of names if you want them. There's too many to name. I've forgotten half of them anyway. Uh, They're already uh, sending letters to the pope before the council opens trying to get him to at the very least amend, if not throw out these schemas. Um, The one they actually like the most and what they're uh, they're okay with is the actual liturgical schema. And this will actually become the council's um, constitution on the liturgy, uh, which they'll debate uh, in the first session. Um, and there's a lot of debate on basically reforming the liturgy. Um, debates about things like uh, introducing the vernacular into the liturgy, more of the vernacular, I guess you should say. Debates about um, um, the reform, debates, by the way, justified in some, uh, some cases, changes that are being proposed in the light of liturgical reforms that have been undertaken by Pius XI, Pius XII themselves in an earlier period. Um, they actually pick up on one of Pius X's phrases, uh, which was um, active participation, an emphasis on the laity actively participating in the liturgy rather than being supposedly mute spectators. Um, and so you have uh, this back and forth on this. But it's the one that, again, this is the one that group that European alliance was most okay with. It's also the one that um, most of the council fathers were actually um, uh, most okay with. And so... Um, the uh, vote on the liturgical schema passes. It passes with two-thirds majority. But uh, you have, um, at this point, you're going to begin to have um, dissension among some of the bishops because they don't actually, they don't know each other. <laughs> uh, one of the problems, you've got 200, 200 people, most of them don't know who the hell they are. Uh, and so what's going to happen is uh, you're going to have um, the European Alliance, this group of bishops, um, raising objections to, uh, uh, raising objections to, um, uh, try to get the rest of the schema thrown out, basically. Uh, in fact, they're going to claim, the, first of all, they need a couple of days to sort of think about this, so they adjourn right after having uh, passed the, uh, um, the, um, the, uh, the uh, session on the liturgy. Uh, and they eventually get uh, the Pope to agree to a revision of the, of the Cal Council's orientation. He throws out the schemas, uh, and they agree to uh, appoint a coordinating commission um, to redo the schema, essentially. Uh, and with that, the first session uh, sort of adjourns. And by the way, several of those coordinating members, they're from this European alliance who wants to, of course, make more changes in the church than what the rest of the people want to do. Um, and that's how the first session basically ends. They basically throughout the rest of the rest of the schema. They're going to create new ones. 
Uh, and they will, by the way. Uh, they'll create 17 new ones by the time they adjourn for the next session. So it goes from seven schema to 17, basically, in the course of the uh, the one year from the end of, it's the end of December 1962 to when they open up again. Uh, and this is the real big turning point in the, in the council because from this point on, it's going to go in the direction of you know, whatever weight there was behind sort of, you know, keeping the same meaning all this stuff goes away. It's going to be oriented toward changing things, essentially. Now, what's going to happen in the next session is that, um, well, first thing is <laughs> Pope's going to die uh, in between the council of uh, the, uh, the second session. He'll be replaced and elected by Paul VI, Giovanni Montini, who also, um, who actually had a representation as being a fairly conservative guy before the council, um, um, but sort of confirms most of the things that John XXIII was, um, was talking about. And so the next debate that takes place is a debate on the nature of the church, which centers around the idea of collegiality. And uh, this is one of these things that comes out of the council in which um, the idea, by the way, is uh, the idea there's a college of cardinals, right, or a college of bishops. You go back to the apostles, right? Peter and the rest of the rest of the apostles were a college, right? And so the idea is a more, if you like, more, um, that's what I'm looking for, less hierarchical, more... What's the word? More shared form of Episcopal authority. Again, the idea is directed at a very, very hierarchical notion of the papacy, right? That's what this is about, essentially. Uh, it's a code word for less centralized authority in the church. Uh, and it kind of comes out in debate where, again, some of the tensions that are lying beneath all this. Uh, because one of the cardinals, and actually uh, this is the cardinal from Cologne, who's actually, he's the person who brings Joseph Ratzinger to the council, Cardinal Frings of Cologne. Um, basically, uh, gets up in the council and gives a speech denouncing the Holy Office, the, the Inquisition, right? Uh, and the guy, by the way, he attacks, this is the, this is the probably only other name you should know, is Alfredo Ottaviani. He was the prefect of the Holy Office. Um, and basically attacked him for all the sort of buzzwords you've ever, ever, ever heard, basically, coming from the Catholic left. You know, legalism, cleric, all this stuff, all these bad things. Uh, and so it, it really seemed like it was going to derail the council. This is one of the most dramatic moments in the council. Uh, but things were sort of you know, basically smoothed over so they didn't do this. And this is one of the people, by the way, who becomes sort of the bete noir of this European alliance is Ottaviani. He'll eventually organize a group of more conservative prelates sort of against some of these changes. It doesn't really work very well. Um, doesn't work as organized as these people were. But he's in this, uh, in this uh, uh, one of these factions in the council itself. Um, and so this is one of the things they're debating back and forth. You also have debates on ecumenism, which will also be one of the more contentious issues that come out of the council. Uh, and again, partly it's, uh, why is this contentious? Because you had, um, I mean, within, I think it was, eight, oh, was it 1944, I don't have the date, but uh, Pius XII had issued a papal encyclical, encyclical in the 1940s called Mysterium uh, Corporis, in which he had stated quite clearly that the, the, uh, that the, uh, that the, um, um, the church was identical with the Roman Catholic Church. So the idea of dealing with non-Catholic Christian bodies as if they were equal was something that was very hard to reconcile with like where they wanted to go here, right? So you have these types of uh, um, uh, these types of um, arguments flaring up in the second session. Um, they had the final vote on Sacrosanctum Concilium uh, in the second session, which, by the way, if you're wondering, well, when I say it changed things, they voted the the actual document. Um, is a mandate to reform the liturgy, but it's very different from what will actually happen after the council. Uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium will give permission for bishops to introduce vernacular into the liturgy. 
Uh, yet it also states that Latin is to re- 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 uh, be retained in all the rites of the Roman liturgy. That is to say basically every liturgy essentially in the, the Western world essentially. Uh, it also says, by the way, uh, the Sacrosanctum Concilium, that in terms of liturgical music, Gregorian chant should have pride of place. So uh, you have a lot of, there's a lot of continuity, my point, is in these documents. There are also, however, um, certain phrases and certain words that are not so clear <laughs> in some of these documents as well. Um, and uh, we'll come back to this in a moment, but there are also things that you could interpret in a very vastly different way uh, in a document like Sacrosanctum, uh, Sacrosanctum uh, Concilium. And so we get into the third session. This is kind of, in some ways, the denouement of the whole uh, council, um, because you're going to have, again, more debates on the church and the bishops uh, initially, uh, more uh, struggles to define collegiality. Um, in particular, one of the most intense and fierce debates is on the notion of religious freedom, religious liberty. Um, you're going to have uh, a real presence at the council in the person of John Courtney Murray, if you know who this was, an American Jesuit. Uh, who had written uh, a bunch of um, articles in the 1940s and 50s on um, church-state relations, in which he basically advocated for uh, altering church teaching with regards to that subject towards something like the American model of church-state relations. Uh, he's one of the, uh, by the way, one of the theologians who had been censured before the council, but he was brought by one of the American cardinals to the, uh, uh, to the council. And this was a touchy one, partly because this, this was not... So theoretical, this is very practical because, of course, the church had signed uh, a variety of concordats with various governments in the, 19th, uh, in the 20th century. Um, the Vatican is still, to this day, governed its relationship with the state of Italy by its concordat signed in 1929, which are based on an entirely different way of looking at church-state relationships. Um, plus, of course, you have mm, several encyclicals in the 19th century which explicitly condemn anything like religious freedom, modern notions of religious liberty, stuff like this mostly by Pius IX, but also by one of his predecessors. So this was one of the really most contentious uh, debates that you have. One of the interesting things about this, by the way, is that a lot of this is coming, again, from Northern Europe. It's mostly bishops from countries like Germany, uh, France to a lesser degree, the Netherlands, Belgium, the United States. The English-speaking world's all for this. Uh, and one of the things that, to note about, by the, by the way, is they're mostly Protestant countries where Catholics are a minority. Again, one of the reasons why you want to want to push for something like modern religious liberty is, hey, it gives you a better deal if you're a Catholic in that kind of setting. Uh, and this was pointed out to, by the way, by opponents of it, because a lot of opponents came from Latin countries, which were majority Catholic. So you're having a different reflection of this uh, come to the floor. And I should mention, by the way, I'm kind of gliding over the votes because I don't want to take up too much time going through this. All of the um, virtually all of the all of the documents that uh, are produced by the council, they all pass with overwhelming numbers. Very rarely they have like less than like 96%. There's a lot of opposition. Very, again, to actually vote against these documents when the Pope is giving his blessing, is, most people wouldn't do that anyway. They might have a stain or something. There's a lot of, lot of debate about this. Uh, and then finally, some more debate about um, the uh, church in the modern world. And uh, this will be the, eventually be the constitution that will be called uh, Gaudium et Space in the third session. And Gaudium Space is... Um, it's probably unique in all the history of documents produced by ecumenical councils because it's meant to address a specific time and place. It's not addressing sort of general Christian, I guess not a general topic, but instead of general Christian themes or enunciating doctrine, it's sort of a, I don't know, declaration to the modern world, basically, which um, 
uh, emphasizes uh, human dignity, talks about uh, the service of the church to mankind, um, talks about debates about the threat of modern technology a lot. Uh, this is they're, they're thinking about, by the way, um, nuclear warfare because this is, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis happened around the same time. All that stuff. Um, in fact, this would probably be the most criticized document be produced by the Second Vatican Council. Um, it, this is where a lot of the really, 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 I think, unwarranted optimism uh, of the time comes through. You have just a very, very, a very, very idealized notion of what it means to cooperate with the world in guided space. There's almost no sense that it might be problematic, or maybe you know, we've just had a couple of world wars, a Holocaust, and we have all this other awful stuff. There's none of that in there. It's all meant to be. Again, they want to. Um, they want to be positive, and most people, I think most people would admit today they were way <laughs> too positive about this at the time. Um, but what kind of changes the whole mood of the council toward the end of it is, are some interventions by Paul VI, who, again, there's no real defined, clearly defined role for the Pope in the council. They haven't said much about the whole thing, neither John XXIII nor Paul VI. Um, but he intervenes three times, basically, before the end of the third session. And why are these? I'll come to the significance of this in a second. Uh, one is that um, he will have a, a, one of the theological commissions insert a note uh, into the document on the church. This will be Lumen Gentium eventually, which will uh, address the issue of, of, a, of collegiality and explain it. It's called the explanatory, uh, an explanatory note in, uh, in Latin, uh, which will basically reinforce the primacy of the pope. Uh, in relation to the bishops, essentially circumscribing that notion of collegiality. Again, this is kind of, if you want to put it in these terms, this is the first sign that he's not okay with the sort of way things are going, with the sort of opening up that's going on in terms of uh, the pastoral orientation of the council. Um, the second is that he called for a halt on the vote on the document on religious freedom uh, until the next session, so it could be debated and discussed more. Again, there's, uh, there was a sense among others as well that the document needed to be revised still. But again, this was kind of interpreted as always putting the brakes on this, this sort of, you know, going forward with the change and everything. Uh, and then finally, the most dramatic thing, I say dramatic, most probably significant thing he did was um, he made mod 20 modifications himself uh, in his own hand to the document on, on ecumenism. Um, without really allowing any, for, any more time for discussion, basically sort of forcing them to vote, vote on it at the last minute. Most of these, by the way, weren't necessarily great changes, but it seemed to be, to a lot of people there, a, a clear indication he wanted to sort of impose his, not impose his will, but sort of uh, interject his authority into the council. That's why it's sometimes called Black Week uh, in Italy, because, again, it seemed like, oh, opening collegiality, and all of a sudden, uh, the Pope says, I want this done. It gets done, basically. Uh, and so you're going to have... Um, Several of the major documents in terms of Lumen Gentium, the document on the church and the world, the constitution of the church, and as well as the decree on ecumenism being sort of voted on at the last second because of that. Uh, and again, this kind of changes the tone of the council in, in, to a certain degree, uh, getting into the last session of, the, of, of it. Uh, which brings me to the end in the fourth session. And... Um, the final debates are kind of anticlimactic because you do have, um, I mean, they actually, most of the schema don't get voted on until the last session. There's a sense, if you read through this, that there's almost a sort of, well, we need to get this done. I should mention this, by the way. John XXIII's plan is that the council would take three months, and it takes three years. Uh, part of it's because they rewrote the schema, but part because they're having these fierce debates. They don't think they realized they were going to have. Um, and they wound up actually passing, voting on 12 schema in the last session of the session itself. 
Um, there are 12 final documents. The most important of these, I mentioned Gaudium et Space, uh, probably the most, uh, again, the most uh, obviously optimistic of them uh, uh, as well. Uh, also, though, any, actually the last ones promulgated were Gaudium et Space on the Church in the Modern World, as well as Dei Verbum, uh, which is the uh, Constitution on Divine Revelation. Um, and uh, again, this is one of these documents, you look at the debates, and at first it's not really clear what they're debating, but there are debates about the nature of revelation going on. And again, this kind of goes back to the intellectual stuff I was mentioning at the beginning of my lecture. Um, there was a worry on the part of some of the more you know, neo-scholastic friendly uh, bishops and theologians that it was too, um, um, how do I put this, it was a little too, um, that's what I'm looking for, uh, too much novelty, if you like, in, in the presentation, but also um, a stress, an overstress on the historicity of Revelation. Again, the idea is you're stressing its historicity so much it makes it sound relativistic a little bit. I honestly don't get this from being Dei Verbum, but it was a, a concern at the time. And so the uh, council comes to a close uh, in December of 1965 uh, uh, with Paul's speech, in which, and again, Paul, a lot like John the Twenty-Third. You never get quite a sense of what exactly, from a lot of these thinkers, what they exactly wanted out of the council. You get a lot of general phrases, but I'll, I'll leave you a couple, a couple of quotes when he uh, draws this together. Um, talking about the church and its relationship to the, the modern world, he says, quote, and talking about the council, uh, well, let me paraphrase. He basically says the council was about mankind uh, and the church and the service of mankind. And then he says, quote, Secular humanism revealing itself in its horrible anti-clerical reality has, in a certain sense, defined the council. We too, in fact, we more than any others honor mankind, speaking of the church as a whole there. It has, and he's talking about the council. It has spoken to modern man as he is. There's this idea that the church had to sort of, if you like, come down to modern man and speak to him in his own terms, uh, is what I kind of get from reading his speech. Um, uh, and so with that ends the council in 1965. Um, things are sort of, um, at least from the perspective of the Pope and people that ran it, they seem to be um, uh, seems to be a success, a triumph. Now, what happens in the aftermath is what's going to change all this. Now, I have to mention a couple of things because I think these are the, as I'll mention toward the end of my lecture, some of the more positive changes. Uh, you'll almost immediately have fruits in terms of ecumenical falls. Uh, relationships with the Jewish, uh, with uh, with the uh, I, I sort of breezed over Nostra Aetate. Um You will have um, actually during the Council, Paul VI will actually be the first modern pope to visit the Holy Land. He'll go to Israel and uh, um, uh, and uh, uh, meet with officials there. Um, the uh, document Nostra Aetate, which is uh, the document on uh, the relationship with non-Christian religions, um, probably the one. If you like solemn definition or solemn condemnation of any error, actually anywhere in uh, Vatican II documents, is the the um, uh, uh, a line in Nostra Aetate condemning all forms of anti-Semitism. So you have that uh, sort of uh, bringing things together a little bit. Uh, this will continue more in the reign of John Paul II. But again, you have for the first time some uh, unofficial dialogue going on between Jewish authorities and the uh, and the Vatican. You also have um, a rapprochement with orthodoxy because, of course, during, I think it's during the council, actually, maybe not. Uh, in 1965, at a meeting with, I believe it's Athenagoras is the, is the, is the patriarch of Constantinople. I can't remember which one that uh, politics meets with. And they, of course, they, um, they revoke the mutual excommunication that had been um, 
uh, pronounced upon each church back in 1054. Big historic meeting, right? Uh, and then finally, you begin to have uh, outreach to various different uh, Protestant churches. There's going to be more informal participation at ecumenical gatherings and things like this. Uh, probably the most, uh, the biggest insti- institutional um, uh, dialogue you'll have basically is with the with the Church of England and the Anglican Communion. You're going to have uh, Paul VI meeting with uh, Paul Ram. I think it's Paul Ramsey. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 19, uh, at the time. Uh, you're going to have an, uh, an, a commission established uh, for dialogue between the Church of England and the uh, and the uh, and, uh, and the Vatican. So you'll have that uh, bearing immediate fruit. But very quickly, you are also going to have um, divisions uh, emerge on the basis of the council and what it meant and what its interpretation was. Partly because you're going to have, and I think this is being done even while the council is still meeting, people begin to increasingly invoke the spirit of the council. Uh, people who want to see further changes, further alterations, not just by the way in terms of you know, the presentation of doctrine, but doctrine itself, practices. Um, and, um, and so you're going to begin to have increasingly within the couple of years of the council a lot of stuff going on, which as I'll get to in a moment is kind of uh, related to wider world, what's going on in the wider social sphere uh, at the time. Um, but you're also going to have, and this is the important thing, people who had been uh, part of that you know, progressive element at the, at the council, people like Joseph Rotzinger, people like Henri de Lubac, all these resourcemon theologians, uh, begin to have, if not second thoughts about the council, about what, at least what was about being done in its name. Very quickly, within a year or two of the council, you begin to have a lot of ill forebodings. Uh, I forgot to mention this one, but Jacques Maritain was a famous philosopher, Thomist, uh, who had been one of the enthusiastic opponents of the council. Uh, within a year, he published a book called The Peasant of Garonne, which you won't need to know this. He's basically him basically trashing a lot of the things that have been done within the first year after the council. Uh, and this was someone, by the way, who was, you know, uh, critical of the Vatican, critical of the, the Holy Office, stuff like that. Uh, he begins his book by whining about neo-modernism. So he's already sort of beginning to have real re- uh, reservations about what's going on. Only to Lubach, and I don't have the quotation in front of me, uh, is already beginning to plain, uh, complain about the, uh, the real Church of Christ being replaced by, I can't remember the, the phrase, but he's already in 1967 publishing, uh, having alarm bells set off about what's going on. Um, as well as people like Louis Boyer and Cardinal Rat- and will be eventually Cardinal Ratzinger, um, concerned about some of the changes. And by the way, I won't go into these in too much detail. You're going to have a lot of these theologians, um, again, increasingly begin to challenge things like, for example, the historicity of the resurrection, stuff like that. Uh, very clear, not always the same people, but a lot of people um, who are connected, some of them are connected to the council, obviously. Um, and so what's going to happen is you're going to have... <coughs> The old, what I'm sorry, the old, but that old conservative, if you like, excuse me, progressive uh, alliance essentially break up uh, as the 60s come to an end. In the early 60s, you have a journal, a theological journal called Concilium, um, uh, which will try to sort of uh, push its theological vision uh, in theological faculties and places like this, which I won't go through the names, but all the sort of people who, again, not all of them, but a lot of them who wanted to sort of see that rapprochement between the church's thinking and modern thought, people like Karl Rahner. Uh, yeah, I won't go through many of the names, but they sort of fall down on that side. They're part of this journal. In the early 1970s, uh, a rival journal was founded called Communio. Both of these, by the way, are still in existence. And Communio is founded by Joseph Ratzinger, Henri de Lubach, 
and some of those resource mom theologians who wanted to, again, they're, they're concerned about what, what was happening because it seems like they just wanted to go back to the Bible, they just wanted to go back to the medieval, something like this. Uh, a lot of people in the council, apparently, and a lot of people after the council met wanted to do just uh, whatever they wanted, apparently. And so, I'm not going too far, but still you get the idea. They're wanting to go beyond what anybody had agreed upon, let's put it that way, either before or during the council. Um, and this is going to come to head especially with um, the foundation of the Society of Paint Pius X in the early 1970s by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. Lefebvre was a uh, father at the council, he was a bishop. And if you don't know, uh, Lefebvre um, was actually a missionary, he was a missionary bishop in Africa. And um, a member of the Holy Ghost Fathers, uh, he resigns from the Holy Ghost Fathers uh, in the early, late 1960s once he sees, again, you have a lot of these religious orders all of a sudden change their litur- liturgies. I'll get to that in a second. Um, again, abandoning uh, things like, you know, uh, um, abandoning a lot of traditions overnight. Um, and so he founds the Society of St. Pius X uh, in a cone in Switzerland. And I don't have time to go through this. What time do I have here? Yeah, I'm going a little over, so I'll have to wrap this up. Um, suffice to say, of course, he's going to fall out with Pi, uh, Paul VI. He's going to become very critical of Paul VI. Uh, and in fact, a couple, I think it was last year, uh, there was just released a transcript of the last meeting he had with Paul VI back in 1976, because what's going to happen is they're going to keep, or try to keep, St. Pius X, if you don't know, uh, Society of St. Pius X. They're going to keep the older liturgy, which becomes a sort of focal point, uh, in many ways, of their criticism of the council. Um, in the face of a lot of opposition, there's a lot of efforts by, by the Vatican Curia to try to shut them down, essentially. And um, I wish I had time to read I wish I had it in my notes. I couldn't find it. Uh, but there was a, 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 a transcript uh, released, I think it was last year, of this last meeting, because um, Lefebvre actually wrote down his account. But this is an account by one of the Pope's secretaries, who apparently didn't like Lefebvre very much. So that's why it's even more interesting. Uh, and it's really, really kind of poignant because both of these people are kind of talking past each other at this point. And to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, one of the things that comes out of the council is this emphasis on you know, dialogue and pluralism. And at one point, Lefebvre is trying to argue, well, why can't we... Have, he actually uses the term, why can't we have pluralism with regards to liturgy? Why can't we have the old liturgy? And the Pope doesn't have much of an answer for him. He just says, well, I'm the Pope and you have to. And it's really... You can tell Lefebvre is, you know, is his cognitive dissonance because the Pope is the, the Pope. But it's a very poignant, uh, a very good image for what happens. It basically splits people, although I don't know if they knew had those types of differences, um, the effect of the council this way. Uh, and so you're beginning to have ruptures already by the people who made the council happen, is my point, within a few years of its uh, coming to an end. Uh, if you were a person in the pews in the 1960s, one of the biggest changes you would have noticed immediately, of course, was the change in the liturgy. Because, and this is something, <clears throat> I'm actually going to give a, a lecture on the liturgy, by the way, in, next semester uh, on uh, the changes in the liturgy, but, <coughs> excuse me, then <coughs> 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 I drowned myself and died. <laughs> Oh, sorry. <coughs> Much easier to uh, to uh, drink it than breathe it. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, oh man. <coughs> oh. Oh. oh, sorry about that. Um, what I was going to say was, 
the reforms of the liturgy were handed, uh, handed over to <coughs> a, uh, a commission called the Concilium. To make a long story short, um, they did something entirely different, which the council did not actually call for. They created an entirely new missal, an uh, entirely new liturgy. Um, they started to, <coughs> excuse me, taking texts from all over the place, basically, from other liturgical traditions, especially Eastern traditions. You'll have, like, liturgical prayers from distant, different Eastern traditions put together. And um, <coughs> within a few years, they put together what's what we call the no, Novus Ordo. Um, and uh, there's a lot of, been a lot of stuff published, accounts of this in the last couple of years <coughs> about what they did. Because there really was no clear, there was no mandate to do this, by the way, in Sacrosanctum Concilium, in the documents of the council itself. And um, uh, Louis Boyer, Father Louis Boyer, who was one of the uh, Peretti at the council, one of these Nouvelle theologians, right, who had been in favor of uh, making changes to the liturgy, <coughs> was actually on one of the, asked to be on one of these commissions, um, uh, these uh, theologians who were rewriting the liturgy. And um, he basically quit after a few months because he didn't take it. Um, basically, had nothing but horrible things to say about people who ran the commission. And um, uh, I mention all this because this is going to cause a lot of upheaval. <coughs> Excuse me. Because uh, one of the things people knew about the, the Catholic Church, the Mass, was, well, it's the same everywhere, right? It's in Latin, therefore it's the same everywhere. All of a sudden, this is thrown into total... Uh, I mean, even during the Council, by the way, before they promulgated any, any new liturgy... Paul VI is already celebrating the Mass in Italian entirely in Rome. GPS so, lost. <clears throat> and then we lost the GPS signal, and that was terrible, right? <laughs> uh, nothing worse, you know, the only thing worse than losing the liturgy is losing your GPS signal. So, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and so you have a lot of, I mean, and there are a lot of things going on, a lot of, um, we'll get to the experiments in a second. There is one last attempt, by the way, to stop uh, the promulgation of this liturgy. This is by Alfredo Ottaviani. This is the former prefect of the Holy Office. Um, issues a, 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 um, there's a study of the liturgy done. He issues a letter to the Pope trying to get him to, uh, uh, get him to do this and um, basically arguing that it, based, that it breaks from tradition and that it de-emphasizes the uh, perennial aspects of, of Catholic worship. Um, uh, it is ignored, and the, the missile goes into effect, I believe, in 1970. Um, having said all this, by the way, nobody waited in any country for the production of this new missile. They were doing things. They were already celebrating the Mass in different languages. They were literally, um, at one point, uh, the Vatican had to intervene to stop bishop conferences and individual bishops from just writing new prayers for the Masses on their own. And again, why did they do this? Well, again, one of the things, we'll get this in a moment, is that the, the, the official air of openness and all this stuff from the council, I think, gave the impression to people that, well, anything goes now. I mean, if you can change the mass, what can't you change, right? Um, and um, I won't go into this to too much detail. You maybe have heard stories. I've never seen it, but, of course, there are things like clown masses and all sorts of ridiculous things going on. Um, but you also did, had some people that um, there were protests against this. The Society of St. Pius X is one big version of this. <clears throat> there was an effort by, and this is kind of interesting, um, by a group of artists and writers and, and uh, musicians in 1971. Uh, they issued a petition to Pope Paul VI, uh, English uh, writers, people like Agatha Christie, uh, Graham Greene, Iris Murdoch, a bunch of other people, uh, signed a petition asking Pius VI to allow them to say, to say uh, the old mass. 
And they did eventually. This is sometimes called the Agatha Christie indult because they were given this indult, this exception, uh, to go uh, to do this. So, because and again, they were. By the way, most of the people, by the way, weren't Catholic uh, and who wrote the uh, petition. They wanted to save the heritage uh, that they thought was being lost with all this. Um, <clears throat> and aside from all this, besides all this experimentation in the liturgy, you have massive, massive, massive confusion about what the church teaches and uh, about who is supposed to obey what and about whom. Um, and part of this is because the church gets caught up in the 60s. I don't think they could have picked a worse time to hold a communicable council and try to open itself to the world than the late 1960s. <clears throat> and um, there is, um, again, sort of widespread, almost, uh, again, the descriptions, I'm trying to give a, a, a depiction of it. I don't know how many anecdotes to give you. Um, I can give you some examples of things. In 1967, the so-called Lando Lake Statement was issued by a bunch of Catholic, uh, oh, uh, Catholic uh, university presidents. Well, Lando Lake is in Wisconsin, if I'm not mistaken. Um, basically proclaiming their independence from the church. <laughs> basically because we're, uh, we're Catholic universities, we have academic freedom. And basically, again, there's this air that we can sort of do it wherever we want now. Because the council has changed these old teachings, everything must be now be up for grabs. Um, uh, the Dutch church uh, issues a catechism um, in uh, 1967, which is kind of risque in its treatment of, for example, the church's relation to non-Christian non, uh, non religions, uh, risque with regards to, you know, uh, I can't remember which theological question, but it takes some liberties. This is sort of investigated by the Vatican. Things are kind of going out of hand pretty quickly. And this is caught up with a general religious crisis in the 1960s because pretty much everywhere across Europe and to a lesser extent the United States, religious observance drops like a stone uh, in um, other religious uh, attendance at worship uh, pretty much across Europe <clears throat> and um, uh, plummets to the sort of very, very low, uh, obviously, practice that you have in Europe today. Um, and this is sometimes, I'll stop about to talk about this for a second, because this is sometimes associated with, sometimes the council gets blamed for this, um, because there's a, a drop-off. Um, the best estimates we have that uh, in 1965, when the council ends, mass attendance in the United States is about 55%, which is actually that's really high. Um, um, by 1970, it's dropped to 48%. Uh, and by 1980, it's dropped to 41%. Now, I say this because that's, 15, that's 14% in 15 years, I think, I think it's hard to say that's the result of anything that happened in the 60s because um, the Church of the United States uh, kind of had uh, an artificial ballooning of its, um, of its membership due to immigration in the 20th century. Uh, and that combined with the baby movement, you had a lot, just a lot more, a lot more Catholics, but a lot, a lot more priests, which I don't have the numbers in front of me. The, the drop-off is basically paralleled by the number of priests leaving the priesthood um, with the, the general population not attending Mass. My point is, after 1980, it stabilizes for about 10, 15 years. Uh, it's only in the mid-1990s. It drops to 1985, about 35%. And then, because uh, it's the same, uh, it's like 41% in 1990, so it's the same for 10 years, unchanged. Then it drops to 22% by 2000. And it's been more or less that ever since. And so, uh, I think probably there would have been a drop-off anyway, is my point, just through, you know, you have fewer briefs, you're going to have fewer people in pews. Um, but it's a generation after. I think there's probably definitely some connection uh, with that drop-off because of all things that went on in the 1970s, uh, uh, which is otherwise a decade I'd like because I was born in it. But still, uh, all that probably confusion probably did. You can kind of see it happening. There's a delayed effect in some ways because um, uh, it basically drops down to the same rates that uh, most other countries have as the United States. 
But the biggest sort of uh, clash of beliefs and ideas, of course, is Humana Vitae. And if you don't know, this is another thing that happens during the, during the council itself. This actually goes back to John 23rd. Uh, John the 23rd was asked by one of the cardinals uh, at the council uh, to form a commission to study the church's teaching on contraception. Um, I'm still not clear on what they were studying, whether or not they could change it. Um, but as you can imagine, it probably led people who heard about this to think, hey, they're going to change the church's teaching if they're going to have a commission about it. Uh, of course, and by the way, the commission does recommend doing that. Paul VI doesn't do it. He says he can't do it. But it's irreformable. And he issues the document Humana Vitae, basically saying this. Uh, and to make a long story short, all hell breaks loose. Uh, this is the, probably the first time when you have massive disobedience, open public defiance by clergy. You have petitions being you know, sent to popes. You have basically um, people just daring you know, the papacy, daring bishops to sort of discipline them. And they don't, uh, probably because they don't think anything they'll be able to enforce that anymore. Uh, it's kind of a turning point as humanity Vitae for a lot of reasons. Um, and in fact, such is the sort of confusion and sort of um, um, the sort of upheaval by the time you get through the 1970s, that little phrase there, the smoke of Satan, if you've ever heard this, it's kind of famous, notorious. Um, Paul, II, Paul VI gave a, um, a sermon in which he talked about all the upheavals in the church being result of the smoke of Satan having crept into the temple of God, basically. Uh, all the doubt about the church's teachings, all the doubt about its, uh, its legacy. Um, and so uh, I'm going to cut it off there in 1978. That's when John Paul II will become Pope. But just to wrap up a few things in terms of uh, um, the legacy of the council. And, um, well, pros and cons. Uh, about pros, basically, here. I think, generally speaking, the good thing, uh, the council... Um, Initiated better relationships with Protestants and uh, and uh, with uh, with the Jewish people. That's a generally a good thing. I think there is, generally speaking, a greater emphasis on Scripture than there had been. That's a generally a good thing uh, before the um, before the Council. One thing is actually very good. I didn't mention. Kind of gets into. They actually issued a declaration on this in the Council itself. Are the recovery of Eastern Catholic traditions? Um, one of the documents was um, they issued was on. Um, the um, Eastern Churches, Orientalum, uh, Orientalium Ecclesiarum, which basically instructed, you know, they basically gave encouragement to the Eastern Churches to recover, for example, of the, the liturgical heritage of some of these churches. If you don't know the history, of, for example, in the United States of a lot of these Eastern Churches, uh, there were attempts to force them to embrace Latin and the liturgies and things like this. Um, the um, the uh, Maronites, by the way, if you know what the Maronite rite is, this is an independent church, Eastern Catholic Church in Syria. Um, their liturgy was originally in Aramaic, which is the language Jesus spoke. But they also adopted Latin after the Council of Trent. So you have an effort by um, the Second Vatican Council to get them to encourage them to recover some of these liturgical, these devotional traditions. That's a good thing on the whole. Um, and in general, it can be overdone. It can be done in a bad way. I do think, in general, the encouragement of lay participation in the church's life is a good thing. Uh, all those as matters of, you know, pastoral emphasis are probably good things. <clears throat> the cons? Um, the biggest con, uh, uh, con, of course, is the confusion about the church's teachings. Uh, and this kind of goes back to the nature of the council itself, because... The church, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the documents of Vatican II and some of these, these um, debated issues, uh, again, one of the things, you know, it is a council, so it, is, it does have authority. It's authoritative, the teachings, but 
the again, nothing's really nothing is solemnly defined. That's usually by the way when we say something's binding on Catholics. It's solemn definitions of faith by the by a pope or by a council. They tend to be binding. There's nothing really like that in the council because of the form of it. Because it took this sort of loosey goosey uh, form once they had rejected the original you know uh, schemas for the actual council. But also because it was very much self-consciously, everybody talked about this. The popes talked about this. The fathers talked about this. It was a a pastoral council. And so, well, can a pastoral council even change doctrine? Nobody's really sure. There's no agreement on this, by the way, to this day. So that confusion is one of the worst things, I think. Probably the biggest thing that came out of this. The second thing, of course, is um, the great divisions that opened up within the church about all sorts of things that hadn't been there before. And again... I'm not saying, by the way, the council caused this. It probably revealed divisions that were already there, people weren't aware of. Um, but that's obviously uh, one of the big uh, uh, negatives of the council. One of the things that really does happen, and I say when I say loss of Western traditions, uh, I'm going to go ahead and blame some of the council fathers for this. Um, there was a real sense among some of these, uh, these this, is, this is my interpretation. I don't want to add events to this, but simply reading their speeches, reading their comments. You got the sense from some council fathers that the only way the Catholic Church could appreciate non-Catholic Christians or other religions uh, was to denigrate their own traditions. They had to smash and destroy the liturgy. They had to do all these. They had to sort of denigrate their past in order to sort of raise up others. I, I give you an example, by the way. Is it's very odd to me that you have at the same time the council calling for the Eastern Catholic churches to recover their liturgical traditions, their particular historical traditions. And then within a few years, they just throw out everything in the Western Rite, basically, that never existed. It's very strange, and I think that this, there's something of this, again, this is something that, it's going on in Western life generally in the 1960s, right? This is the era of things like post-colonialism. Why am I mentioning this? There is, again, one of the comments that some of these, uh, uh, some of the um, more liberal commentators on Vatican II I read in preparation for this, uh, one of their criticisms of, of Latin was, well, it was a, it was sort of this Western imperial language and is imposed on because we have you know bishops from Africa. I'm thinking, but those bishops bishops of Africa can't speak Latin. They were they were colonized by French people and German people. It has nothing to do with Latin. Uh, and so there is this very much this sense that, that these things are getting mixed up. Uh, I think in a lot of these people's minds, and it's it's a loss. It's amazing how many things disappeared overnight. I can't begin to enumerate them for you. Maybe some of you know this. Um, things that has existed from time out of mind just went poof in a few years. Uh, which in a lot of ways is a traumatic thing uh, for people. Um, and then finally, I'm, I'm mentioning a decay of aesthetic disciplines. Um, I'm thinking about things like, you know, no meat on Fridays, um, not fasting before uh, the liturgy, right? You're supposed to, by the way, you're supposed to do that still, right? You're supposed to not eat in the, the new missile, whatever. Prior to the council, was supposed to eat, I think it was 12 hours before or the night before, whatever, before you take communion, right? Uh, all this is basically, I, I don't, I, I know people who had never heard that in their lives, that you should have to do that at all. I mean, it's amazing when I first walked into a Catholic church, I'm a convert, right? Uh, and I would talk to people, and people in the pews, by the way, going to mass, and they have absolutely no idea what it is they believe or are supposed to believe. It's amazing. Um, but even those, especially, even things like, again, it's, it's silly to give up meat, but giving up something's like, you know, it's one of those basic disciplines that, I don't know, it's such a, constant part of like all the world's great religions all of a sudden it went away overnight it is kind of amazing when you think about it and generally thinking uh, I think in many ways a tragedy 
And so what about the council? Uh, what's the status of it? Again, a pastoral, I don't, not, I don't have answers for him, by the way, theologically speaking. So a pastoral council? I have no idea. Um, seriously, I'm not sure if that works. Um, I do think, uh, again, I think perhaps if you're going you're gonna to take, um, I don't know. I, I don't know. Uh, I'm not a theologian, so I can't say. Um, but it sounds doubtful to me. Uh, I don't think you can say it's pastoral. You can't ignore its teachings. On the other hand, this is actually a phrase I got from, uh, from Ratzinger. There are some people who treat Vatican II as what he calls a super dogma, which is to say, like, everything in the church must be read through the lens of, the, of Vatican II. And I'm, there are so many writers who, uh, I, I try, I read a lot of things, but um, otherwise, you know, modern theologians, modern spiritual writers I, I read, every discussion, every page, everything has to start with a reference to Vatican II. And I'm like, hey, that. The church is 2,000 years old, <laughs> and I just think there's this overemphasis on it in a lot of ways. Um, a third way to think about it, by the way, uh, is that, what does it say, failed council? And I say this, what I mean by that is not to say, by the way, that it erred doctrinally or anything like that or any of those sorts of things. But if you go back to the beginning when I said, uh, quoting uh, Benedict XVI's speech, he said basically this, this council was meant to sort of, you know, resolve some of the tensions and problems with the modern world. And uh, I have to say, again, it's been 50 years. Maybe you say you can wait a little bit longer. Things sometimes take time to play out. If the goal was to resolve those tensions, I have to say it seems like it's pretty obviously a failure to me. Um, nothing's been resolved. I mean, there's still the same tensions there were 100 years ago in the modernist crisis. Not gone away. Um, I mean, again, it did some good things. Obviously, the council I've said it did some good things. But if that's going to be the, uh, the measure... I'm not sure you can say how it, uh, how it actually succeeded. And then finally, this is my last, um, this is my sort of two cents about this. I, I think in some ways we need to move on from the Second Vatican Council, uh, if you haven't gotten my drift already. Um, again, some lovely things in some of the documents. Um, but there's too much in there that's ambiguous, too much in there that's vague and kind of imprecise. Um, and the biggest thing is that nobody has ever made clear how, again, the, the Declaration, for example, on religious freedom. There are ways, by the way, to reconcile that with you know, 19th century papal encyclicals. You can do it. Nobody in authority in the Vatican or any sort of official uh, of the Catholic Church has ever made clear how you're supposed to reconcile them. And until you do, you're still going to have these problems because it's not clear at all from what they said. But uh, I, I think, generally speaking, people, if you're a thoughtful person and you're a serious guy, like, you need to sort of learn the entire tradition and uh, put it in a broader context. Because um, so much of what's in, the, especially I'm thinking of Gaudium at Space, is so dated. It was so of the time. It was so directed toward, it was directed quite likely toward that post-war um, that post-war Europe that a lot of those fathers had grown up in. I think had, I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt because Gaudium at Space is a really intellectually not a very edifying document to read. Um, I think it's in some ways a love letter to that. Because it was already, I, I say this because it, that they, you know, the, those people deserve a lot of credit for what they did, but they, I think they just got the focus totally wrong uh, in terms of what they were looking for. And um, I think the sooner we do that, I think my impression is that, uh, again, I don't know, I'm 40 years old. Most Catholics under 40 don't care about this anyway. And they probably, they probably shouldn't care about it that much. You should definitely read the documents uh, and see, what they, see them for yourselves. But uh, to me, I, I think I can find my bearings uh, 
in other parts of the church's very vast and wonderful tradition. So um, that was a lot longer than I wanted it to be. I apologize to you. So uh, that is the end of the speech. Um, yes, any questions?